You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Father Paul explains how verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, literally impossible to hear in translation, serves in his words as a powerful hinge for the entire Bible. The verbs to serve and to keep the earth set the stage in the Bible for man's obedience to God and the keeping of his law. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Let me go quickly over the four rivers. The first two rivers are detailed because they have generic names. Okay, Pishon and Gaishan, let's not spend too much time on that. If you know Hebrew, they are from two roots that mean to gush out, basically. Both of them, you can read that in my commentary in the books, but it's just the meaning more than anything else. Why am I stressing this? Because the latter two are mentioned by name, and the people know what the Tigris is and what the Euphrates is. And the author, notice in verse 14, does not explain to you. He says, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. Notice here again the mention of the east, Kidmat Ashur, and then the fourth river is the Euphrates. So already, even someone who doesn't know specifically the meaning and the function of Havilah and Kush would understand that the author is pointing to the Syrian desert. But earlier, when he spoke in detail about each, he mentions areas that the hearer will meet later. The first one, the land of Havilah, where there is gold, and this appears again later in the other books, the connection between Havilah and gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium, onyx, stone are there, and Havilah very clearly is the southernmost part of the actual Arabian Peninsula. And Cush, in verse 13, everybody knows already that it is southern Egypt. So, from the Bible, even if you don't know it here, you wait a little bit, you will realize that the author is speaking about this large Syrian Arabian desert. It goes way to the south. The south of Saudi Arabia will be included when we hear about the Queen of Sheba and Egypt and Cush is included in the story of Exodus. We hear the word Cush in Amos and so So the world of the author is not just uh, one acre of arid sand. No, it's a place where you have life. 
You have flocks, you have caravans, you have oases that used to be the inns in the past. So it's complex. The author is much more intelligent than we assume. He's really pointing to this reality. Now, the sources of the Euphrates and the Tigris are in Armenia. And when we get to this sudden mention of mounts of Ararat in the story of the flood, I shall explain, as I did in my books, that it is intentional. He's pointing to that area of the sources of these two rivers. So once more, friends, things are more interconnected than they are in the classic theology that is either historicizing or mysticizing because it is interested in the value of the eternal human being. It's not so. Life is not so. It is really impressive that in a few verses, the author posits you as a human being, son of Adam, child of Adam, in this reality which is the Syrian Arabian desert that starts way up in Armenia and goes way down to Egypt. Okay, look at the map and you will see it is quite an area. It's as vast as the United States. Very powerful. And the text ends nicely, softly, sweetly, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Now comes this difficulty of all translations, starting with the Greek. And I think it's intentional. The original translators used the Greek, but at the same time showed that it is not enough. That's why one always has to remember the prologue to the book of Sirach. Notice the Greek, from which we have the English, translate the original Hebrew into put, just set him. But that's not what we have in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, we have a verb from the same root as Noah later, which reflects enjoyment, relaxation, as we shall see in the explanation of Noah later. And he made him relax. Let's remember that in order to understand why the following verb Abad, which should be to serve, again is mistranslated into work. No, you have to relax, enjoy it. The oasis is there. You have just to clean it now and then, the way you dust your abode. Okay? You just use a broom or a hoe just to push things aside to help the vegetation continue growing. Remember, you, the human being, did not plant the garden. 
for him to work it. He didn't do anything. So let's rehear that verse 15, which personally I like very much <laughs> because it belittles us to the extreme. And he made him enjoy himself in the Garden of Eden so that, and let's hear it, the original, he would serve her and keep her. Now, why am I stressing this feminine? It is because gen in Hebrew is masculine grammatically. But this her is feminine, which means it cannot refer except to either Eretz, which is feminine, the earth, or Adama, ground, which is feminine. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't work because they translate afton, which means it's a reference to the garden. Same thing in English. Let's hear it in English. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. There is no student, not even a professor of language, who can deduce that the it refers to earth and not to garden. It's impossible. That's how you hear it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And here I'm saying to my hearers that this is not the original. The original is that God made the man enjoy himself with the gifts of the earth in the Garden of Eden to serve her and keep her. And these two verbs are obviously intentional. Because, as I said, Abad means to serve and Shamar means to keep, to keep in order to do, as later we shall hear time and again about our relationship with the law. So, at this point, if you listen to the text, you don't have to have a PhD in rocket science, let alone theology that disturbs everything. The author is already planting the seed of the man being the slave of God, serving God to the extent to which he keeps God's commandments. How do I know that? Because in a couple of verses, we shall hear for the first time a direct relationship between God and the human being, where God is giving the human being a command to keep. So this verse 15 is really a powerful hinge to the entire Bible. Notice once more, we have the verb from the same root as Noah, who as I shall show, we may understand it. Instead of enjoying the earth, he plants the vineyard. And that is going to be the beginning of the end. He somehow shows himself as being the son of Cain more than he is the son of Adam. But we'll talk about it later. 
Okay, although he was a good guy, but you know, good guys in the Bible very often turn into bad guys. No one is good except God. And the other thing is these two verbs, to serve the earth and to keep her. And to do so, you have to serve God and keep his commandment. How do I know that? Because later the blessing and the curse of the land, which is the gift of God to his people Israel, is directly, directly linked to the obedience or disobedience of the people to God. I mean, it's so clear. Again, my thesis stands again. One through four is the entire Bible, but to understand it, you have to know the rest of the Bible. Things, if you like, are put quickly as you do in the introduction to your paper. You hit the main topics or the main words you're going to use, thesis, and then you develop it. It's really beyond ingenious, this text. Once more, and once more, and once more, in the original, and only there. And those who have their doubts, please, as a punishment, keep reading seven times a day, Genesis 2.15, and every time you read it, and you understand it the way you heard it in English, tell yourself, it is not so, it is wrong. When I think of the later passages about keeping the commandments, it really starts here. When the human being, Adam, is beginning to serve and beginning to keep the commandments. This is where it all begins. But it starts with the Lord taking him and allowing him to rest in the garden. That is important also from this other perspective, which we all know, but it's good to stress it here. When people hear the law... Immediately, they assume that it's Exodus through Deuteronomy. But we know that scripturally speaking, the law are the five books of Moses. And here we see very clearly that Genesis is at the beginning and is the root. One cannot start with Exodus. Very simply, Exodus begins with the statement, and then when there arose a pharaoh that did not know Joseph. Very clearly, you have to go back a few chapters. So that, from another perspective, is very important for me, that the book of Genesis is definitely the constitutional book of the entire scripture, as I refer to it. There's something you said that I want to key in on. The garden was there before us. The setting for life was there. We don't make any of this. We're simply placed in this setting. The Bible was there before you, and it will be there after you're gone. Well, early in chapter 13, the ground will be cursed because of Adam. Adam is never mentioned that he is cursed, but the ground, and that's the trouble. When the ground is cursed, you have no life in it, and that's the punishment which means that the Bible is before you and after you, and everything in it 
is before you and after you. But this is not ecology and science and history of the earth. And no, 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 no. That's also a mistake that people do. They love to jump into philosophy and science. No, it's literature. That's the way it is posited in the text, which means that the text imposes from the outside that the Adama is primary to Adam. And again, friends, that is not possible except in the original. We have to get this into the marrow of the bones of our mind. It's not that I think you think I like it, it's impressive. All this is vain talk for me. It is imposed upon you. It was not rendered even in the Greek, the closest to Hebrew. Which means exactly as a hearer in Greek has to submit to the original text of the Bible, out of which comes God into your life. Remember that. So I'm taking your statement and pushing this to the extreme. And this is reflected in the tradition of the Orthodox Church, and that's why the Orthodox puzzle me more than anyone else. You bless everything with the book. The reference is the book that you hold at the beginning, way up, and then you open it to be heard. That is your only reference. And thus, the word, and he made him enjoy life in Eden, becomes really central, not secondary. Well, uh, he put him there. <laughs> What's the big deal? As though you have a Hollywood director making a movie, Cecil B. DeMille. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille and his Ten Commandments is not biblical. The Prince of Egypt of Steven Spielberg is non-biblical. It's high time that we realize this. It is the text that brings in Ararat. I mean, when you hear this text at the beginning, Tigris and Euphrates, your reaction is Mesopotamia. Come on now, let's not play games with that. And Mesopotamia for you is modern Iraq. That's it. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is pushing more to the south through the Paishan and Gaihan, Havila and Kush, and then later, and you have to wait. It's not that everything is here. You have to wait for mounts Ararat, out of the blue. And when I'll get there, I'll explain. This term appears only four times in the entire Bible. But it's there right from the beginning. So you're pushing north all the way to the sources. And that is my bone of contention with any thoughts, theology, approach, or even using the Bible for your own thing, even ecology. There was no ecology then. I mean, someone living between the oases doesn't need ecology. 
that is something we have to understand. And let me end with this, with your permission. It has been always my stress that in teaching the Bible, you have to take your hearers from 2018 North America or wherever you are in the rest of the world at any time back to the times of the scriptural text. Not make the Bible alive in our days as I hear time and again. In other words, the preacher is telling his congregation, submit to my sermon this morning. Are you kidding me? You submit to the Bible, not to the sermon. How many times I told you, let's say on Sunday you have a laryngitis. Obviously, in mega churches, you can ask your helper to, no, just do not preach. And how many times I told you, and your parishioners will be so happy because they had enough of your preaching. We have to clear the ears and the eyes and the minds of our hearers to let them hear the original text addressed to them as though they were standing in the wilderness of Egypt the way Paul did with the Corinthians in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. I got excited, but I needed to say this. and You're going to hear it time and again and again and again and again. And the pressure is on the teacher to really do that. Not on the people. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Oh, thank you. God bless you. God bless you much. Thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.